Hello, everyone. This is Craig Peters here from Soundiron, and on today's Soundiron podcast, we talk with Misha Mansour, who's the guitarist and founding member of the progressive metal band Periphery. And during our conversation, he talks a little bit about how he approaches business opportunities, his workflow in using Cubase, tips and tricks, some up-and-coming projects, and much, much more. So stick around. All right, so I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about at first was, um, you know, because you're definitely someone who likes to stay busy, it seems, and, you know, you have your hand in a lot of, you know, really exciting projects and stuff. And uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, how have you, have you always been like a very entrepreneurial type person? Or is that something that like since you were younger, you've been that way or sort of, um, you know, as you got in a band and started doing more stuff with that? You know, I think it's one of those things that I never thought about. You just you just are the way that you are, and you just look at things a certain way. I think I've appreciated, maybe in my in my later years, like uh, that the fact maybe in hindsight that I'm entrepreneurial, but it just felt like sort of a logical. It's just the way I kind of like looked at the world and opportunities. Um, and to be honest with you, I think a lot of the entrepreneurial people that I've met and that I know are kind of the same way they weren't ever there wasn't ever really like a decision like i'm going to be entrepreneurial about this or whatever it's just that was the way that they looked at the world Mm -hmm. um and the way that they saw opportunities it's like when you know some something came in front of them uh, a lot of people would look at it this way and you know i would look at it a different way like oh we could do this with that and and i think the other thing is um you know, I always wanted to be, well, not always, but like when I was like 14 or so, I wanted to be a musician. And then you had the, the dream of starting a band, going on the road, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think with that, you know, my parents, my parents were not thrilled about the idea that I was dropping out of school to pursue music, but it was what was making me happy. Um, and it's something I knew I needed to pursue. So they said, look, like, will support your decision to do that as long as you're responsible about this. Like you need to know what you're getting into. Um, and, and I, I really took that to heart. Like I, I tried to learn as much as possible. Um, I saw that a lot of younger bands were making mistakes with their contracts just out of sheer excitement or the fact that they didn't really know, uh, you know, what was going on or what to look out for. So I asked a lot of our peers and, and bands and people that had experience for advice um, and for things for, to look out for. And I think I've just always had the, that sort of inquisitive mind about that. I'd like to be as best prepared for the scenario that I'm about to jump into. Um, so, you know, to, to, I, I don't know if that gives you some context of what I'm talking about. I don't know if that's seen as entre- entrepreneurial or not there, but I think it's just having that sense of like looking at it from that scope rather than sort of jumping in and just seeing what happens, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, looking around and seeing what other people are doing and and always just uh, trying to have sort of not just a wing it mentality, I think. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't really like to wing things uh, when it comes to business, you know, maybe when it comes to figuring out a new piece of gear. I'm not the biggest fan of reading the manual, (laughs) but on things that can severely affect your 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 chance of success and the outcome of certain situations. There, I like to be a bit more meticulous and prepared. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
as far as like other stuff, you know, that you've done with Periphery, you know, you do a lot of stuff with gear companies and, you know, definitely, a, you know, a lot of different stuff gear related. Uh, and I've seen that you've been working with PV on the Invective uh, head and cab. And I was like wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, about kind of how that came yeah, about. I mean, that was just sort of an opportunity that, 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 that came to me. It was like the idea was that I felt that I could design a pretty cool amp and I felt that PV was a good company to to do that with, um, since you know the the fifty one fifty slash sixty five oh five archetype is just a very pleasing amp, and it's a very appropriate amp for metal and for rock, and especially if you're recording. Um, so I went to them and and kind of discussed it, and they were it's something that they were interested in, and. I think generally like the idea was like, you know, I think that there's a lot that's good about that amp. I think there's a lot that really could be improved or completely changed. Um, and that was like sort of the, the general approach. It, it sort of morphed into a thing of its own, to be fair. Um, Cause I think maybe some people have seen it sort of as some sort of uh 6505 version two, which, you know, would really be selling it very short. Yeah. Uh, so even if that was sort of the, the impetus of starting the process, like, kind of evolved into its own thing but um i've said this every time i'll say it again you know if you ever get the opportunity to design an amp with someone you say yes you know yeah especially fascinating process yeah yeah it's a fascinating process and the engineer that i worked with uh with there uh john fields is just such a he's so damn good at what he does um and so the whole process was just a lot of fun it was a really fun process yeah i would think especially just if you're into that sort of thing that you know, someone saying, Hey, do you want to learn more about it and, and develop something that you, yeah, of course you'd be like, Oh, like, hell yeah, I'm going to jump on that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're not a gear, a gear nerd like me, then maybe the answer is no. But for me, that was like pretty much exactly what I wanted to hear. So yeah, I went for it. And the amp that we designed, I mean, it took like three years to design the amp, but the amp that we designed, uh, is just incredible like i i really surpassed my expectations of what i thought we'd be able to do or get away with so i'm really really glad that that we did that if anything just because i've got this sort of dream amp now (laughs) sitting right behind me yeah i would think like having having an amp that you know it's kind of like um you know with the stuff you guys did with with get good drums just being able to like like now we have our own drum samples we don't have to go anywhere else you know because i know before you guys used a lot of superior drummer and right and now it's like well yeah, we have our own, you know, drum samples, you know, that our drummer uses. So it just makes everything that much more your own and that much more fun. I think when you start doing pre-production and writing and just having your own sounds that you get, you know, stoked about. Absolutely. And it's experimentation. I think, I think part of it, like with get good drums is, um, to quote the golden era of top gear is how hard could this be? You know, how, how hard could it be to, to, put our own uh sample library we have all the 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 pieces that we need we have all the tools we we think we have the knowledge um so are we missing something and it was sort of an experiment let's let's see what happens if we you know go and try to create our own drum library and what happens yeah um and i think we were just as ready for it to be like oh this, you know this is a colossal failure because we completely underestimated the work or how things would translate in the context of a drum library um, but it ended up being the opposite, you know, it, it ended up being this, this thing that for us personally was a success. And it was, for me, I was just like, it's so awesome to have 
my drummer Matt. <laughs> yeah, you know, just ready, ready to go. I mean, he's gonna be playing these parts anyway. So for me, it, and 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 the sounds that we both like, you know, it's just it's just very much like you have your own bespoke drum library. Well, yeah, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, but then as it turns out, um, it it was something that other people really enjoyed too, and it and it did quite well for us, uh, and and continues to do so. Awesome. Um, but it really just it just started out as a as like an, an interesting experiment slash passion project because we're just a bunch of nerds. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's cool because it's like you sort of have everything laid out. You have, you know, an awesome drummer. You know, Nolly has a great ear for production and, you know, seems like he's Absolutely. very meticulous when it comes to, you know, the recording process and just always he's, trying he's to. He's the most he's the most meticulous guy you'll ever meet. I mean, it's in, it's insane. Yeah, it seems but, like, it. you know, he's. <laughs> But but even more than that, because I feel like usually you fall into this this uh, this category of people who are extremely meticulous, but then sort of have a robotic uh, aesthetic as a result because everything must be just so. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who just follow their ear, but then it's sort of like more more art than it is science. And Nolly manage, manages to straddle this line so perfectly between, you know, really being meticulous and understanding what he wants, but also having just one of the most astonishing ears I've ever heard. So he knows how to listen uh, and what to listen for. Uh, and, and it allows him to, to sort of use the best, best of, of both sides to where uh, the science, the scientific side and the, the meticulous side can sort of inform the artistic side on how to achieve the best result. And it's a real gift. It's the reason why I, you know, I recognize I couldn't ever mix at the level that he does or, or engineer at the level that he does because it really is a gift. Yeah, I think I saw in an interview somewhere that you actually started showing Nolly stuff at first, right? As far as mixing goes. Yeah, I mean at first because you know, and I again, I'm 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 not the read the manual type, so I, I had a sort of painstaking process, and and it was very much not by the book. There's a lot of stuff I was doing that was just plain wrong, <laughs> but that just sort of functioned at best. Uh, I've never considered myself to be good at mixing. It was just. A way, a means to an end. I, I really like composition and production and things like that, yeah. but and writing. But I, mixing was just a, a means to get something that was decent. Um, and at first, Nolly was coming to me for tips, and then you know, not even a couple months later, he was teaching me how to mix. So he, he that's that's really a, a gift that he has. It's something that came extremely naturally to him with with his sort of personality type. And that's why it's, I think that's a large part why, uh, you know, the, the, the get good drum samples came out the way they did. Yeah. Uh, also too, I saw that you guys have been teasing a little bit about, uh, some work with JST and doing an amp sim. Uh, can you talk about that at all or? Oh yeah. I just dropped that. <laughs> well, I can't talk, I can't talk too much. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to be, uh remaining somewhat tight-lipped but i think you know there's quite a bit uh there's quite a bit of information out there just by virtue of that video being out but yeah it got everyone i'm sure all riled up (laughs) i mean again it's like uh you know joey joey's an awesome dude i I love his plugins and you know we kind of connected and he was like hey well would you ever be interested in doing a software amp and i was like yeah of course i would and more so because you know the thing is like i I'll only ever like software amps. I haven't really loved them. And I think going in, I was like, this is the challenge, you know? And I think he saw that as a challenge. And I thought his amps were really cool. They felt really good, like what they were going for. What I go for is so specific that obviously wouldn't necessarily fall into that aesthetic. But 
I was very impressed with the feel because I feel like that's where a lot of the software ramps fall short. They'll be sort of fantastic for reamping. Like I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, TSE X50, which I think is just a fantastic and a big surprise. It's a it's a 5150 model, you know. <laughs> but but like uh, but I think they did an absolutely fantastic job making it sound great. I've used it on like final mixes for for uh, bands I've mixed and. Um, uh, it sounds wonderful, but it doesn't feel very good to play on. Like it's really better suited for reamping, you know, uh, in in the context of a mix. Um, and and this was a challenge. I was like, well, you know, I know that there are plugins out there that that can sound good, and I, you know, I know that that Joey's plugins feel good. So I was like, look, like this is something I'd like to see if we can crack. Is sort of make the best sounding, best feeling software plugin, and uh, you know. Here we are a couple of years later and I'm, I'm, I'm still getting, I mean, these are still beta versions. So there's yeah. a, there's a few kinks that need to be worked out, but man, even that first one blew me away. The first, and this, this, this version, this version that I posted the, the video of is, is a few iterations in, mm-hmm. but just the first one, uh, which didn't sound as good as this one. I was already like, okay, like this, this is real. Like, like now this, we're getting, this somewhere. can happen now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't know what those guys are doing what black magic they're working with over there but they they seem to have cracked something and this one this one just sounds very much like me which is kind of crazy like it shows that he really gets what it is that I'm going for which ultimately is like that's a real thing it's like we're we're you know you're 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 in this industry too you know like we're we're talking about sounds through abstractions yeah. you know like oh it needs more bite it needs more attack like what does that mean that means 10 different things to 10 different people so when you can communicate with someone and they actually understand my god that saves you so much time and, and trouble and that's why even the first beta was like oh he nailed it you know um so i can't talk too much about the features and the details like like I, he's he's definitely i'll say that they have gone like overboard with the features like this thing is going to be able to do everything it's like i kind of made a wish list and they were like okay <laughs> to everything so that's great i love feature pack things but it's actually like deceivingly simple too because i think a lot of people don't want to be overwhelmed by um by whatever uh the plugin is and and we found that with ggd and horizon as well um that like people tend most most of our customers want uh, things that are relatively simple, you know, maybe sound iron finds things a little, a little bit different because I, I imagine you guys cater to like composers and people who sort of go under the hood. And I'm one of those people like I like pretty in-depth stuff, but I know for a lot of people that could be so intimidating that they'll actually just not want to use the, the product. I think um, one of the things that's always like finding that that middle ground of, you know, because you get some people that are like, you know, I just want to open it up, plug and play and just get get going and start, you know, working on whatever you're working on. But then, you know, you have some people that they want to really tweak stuff. And I think, you know, some companies have that option where they can do both. And then some companies have it where it's just like kind of one or the other. And, you know, can right. Be sort of the deciding factor. Of what makes people want to use it? Well, like, for example, when um, when I was using TuneTrack, like I always loved Superior. But they didn't really have a lot of superior libraries coming out. It was always Easy Drummer, which I was not the biggest fan of with Easy Drummer because Easy Drummer had sort of a a finished sound, but you couldn't really impart your own character onto it. They were kind of they were kind of done. It was like what you what you get, right? But Easy Drummer is literally what made that brand because that's what ninety percent of of customers wanted. So I guess I recognized in that moment that I am not the majority of the customers, and I have to sort of 
um, you know, changed my perspective on 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 the products and 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 how we make these things. Because if it were up to me, I'd put everything in the kitchen sink in it. But most people would actively dislike that. Yeah, it's like you give people too many options, they almost get overwhelmed. They don't even, you know. Yeah, option paralysis, you know, and it's just, and then they just won't want want to use it or buy it or whatever. So yeah, you know, you you, you kind of again, it's learning from other people's uh, experience and uh, and inputs. Yeah, but I think a lot of people that sort of get into the home recording uh, studio, you know, building a home studio and just like ha- having all this stuff, I would think a lot of people tend to sort of want to learn more. Like when I first got into it, it was like you know, I just want to be able to record my band stuff. You know, it's like, all right, we, uh, we need to record pre-production, you know, it saves time and money. All right, cool. Let's do it. And the more I started doing it, I just started realizing like, man, like I want it to sound good. And then you just start, you know, researching how to mix and, you know, how to, you know, stuff that I, you know, I'm never going to be a mastering guy, but you know, like basics of mastering, just, you know, to make your creations sound that much better. And, you know, there's a, like anything you could just spiral down the wormhole and just absolutely get lost in it no absolutely and that's pretty much how i got started as well was like you kind of dip your toes in the water uh and then and then it'll either be like kind of oh this is good enough or i need to know everything about the you know (laughs) like you'll just fall down that rabbit hole so but i think i think that i assume that everyone was sort of in that latter category and it turns out that a lot of people are quite content with having something that just works well enough because the goal isn't necessarily to have the best sounding mix in the world. It's to get the creative ideas out as sort of effortlessly as possible, you know? Yeah. So you do a lot of stuff with, uh, orchestral stuff too. Like on your YouTube channel, you do like, you know, some walkthroughs of, you know, some orchestral compositions and stuff. And, uh, you know, me personally, I can definitely relate to that because it's just like coming from more of just like the metal background and then but always loving orchestral music, film scores, you know, video game composer music. And so like growing up, like um, I always loved the music for Final Fantasy, just playing the video games. But I was never a music, you know, a, like I liked music, but I right. wasn't like, oh, I want to, you know, be a composer or play guitar. I just for some reason always just had a love for the music. I would listen to the CDs and stuff. And I noticed you're, you're a big final fantasy buff too. And, um, you've done some mock-ups and stuff and sort of like, like who are some of the other composers that got you into that, into that style and wanting to compose orchestral mock-ups and that sort of thing. You know, you know, it's interesting. This is an interesting uh, question because I think I've always been exposed to classical music, probably what I'd call like pop classical music, like the the, the big guys, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, um, uh, Bach, Tchaikovsky, like all the guys that like would get kind of thrown in, you know, if you had like a classical music compilation CD, you know, yeah. and all those, all that material. And I, I was kind of raised on that, though, you know, Um and uh, so I'd always always had like an appreciation for the the style, the sort of moves that they do, and the 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 aesthetic of it, you know. Um, but uh, I I think I always had a fascination with it, but I never felt like it was anything that was particularly accessible to me. I mean, we all know how expensive um, uh, <laughs> renting an orchestra can be. Yeah, and uh, thousands and of dollars. Com- <laughs> Right. And it's just like composing for that is just so overwhelming. It's like, I'm going to compose for 80 instruments. Like what? Like I, I, I have enough trouble composing for four or five. You yeah. Know? So, um, but, but when I realized that computers had finally caught up to where you could get like these realistic mockups with, with software, that was like, that, that kind of changed my life a little bit, you know? 
but it was just this this thing and it's it was a very similar feeling i've told people this like to when i first discovered i could record on my computer because then all of a sudden it was like i don't have to rely on anyone else like i can make music happen in my computer in my own time and that's what i did and it was like this whole world was open to me and i just wanted to explore it and I had no idea what I was doing, but that was the fun. Well, it was the exact same thing with uh, with the orchestral stuff. It was like, now there's this whole world that I didn't have access to, that I have full access to, and that if I work hard and I hear people's mock-ups, I hear some mock-ups, I'm like, I would never be able to tell that this was not a real orchestra. Yeah, it's getting and really that's good like, nowadays. That's, that's, that, that's the bar. And it's partially the libraries. It's partially some of these guys are just so talented at either performing or programming that... Um, I remember hearing this one this one guy, uh, Andy Blaney, I think is his name, and he works for Spitfire, and he was doing these like John Williams-esque compositions. They're just nuts, just this atonality and whatever, and and it just it just sounds it just sounded so real. And I was like, this is this is beyond the software. This is just a guy. You give him anything and you'd probably make it, you know, sound incredible, right? And it was that was what I also liked about it. Is this, you know, this is a skill that you're gonna have to work at and learn how to sort of turn to your advantage to make these realistic mock-ups. Um, and yeah, and, and so then, you know, things like uh, so I did, I did I did like an orchestral mock-up of the Final Fantasy VII battle theme. But what I did was I took the MIDI from the original track as well as like some orchestral renditions that had been done. And I put them up there as reference tracks and tried to pick out everything as ear uh, by ear. And it was like a training exercise to learn how composers would use the different instruments and in the different parts of the orchestra. How like something that seems like a line that's like one coherent line is actually spread as it ascends through three different sections, you know, yeah. um, like little little things like that. Like, well, oh, this is how you'd use, uh, you know, these woodwind instruments here, you know, Um and and it just helped me get a bit of a context rather than like sort of reading a manual about what you're supposed to do it was like kind of a way of going around uh from another angle and looking at like how people did it and trying to pick it out by ear um i don't know theory but i do have a strong ear so that's like kind of what i rely on in these situations and it was a lot of fun putting that together you know yeah i think especially when it comes to samples it's almost like some composers talk about, you know, you're writing for the sample or are you writing for the orchestra? But I think like for most of us, you know, who don't have the budget to hire a 80 piece orchestra or, or 120 piece orchestra or however many, it's like you, you have to develop the skill either for, you know, because there's so much stuff that an orchestra can do other than like what subs- you know, some sample libraries can provide, you know, how do you go about doing that when you have, you know, the sample libraries? So it's like, but yeah, picking up picking out an orchestra, kind of like what you did, I think it's great, yeah. and I think it's like one of the things that probably a lot of composers should do more often to really understand how it works. Because you can listen to it, and it's you know, some of the music, like John Williams stuff, is so dense that when you break it down, it's like almost there's you know one big melody that's spread you know across you know a whole orchestra, and uh, it's insane just you know what those guys do, and like when you really right. you know you can listen to that and be like, oh, like that's you know that sounds really cool. And, you know, I want to try to learn how to do that. But then when you really get into it, it's almost like, it's kind of like the recording thing. It, it could be super overwhelming. Yeah, no. And I mean, looking at John Williams, like he's obviously got his themes that are very recognizable. And I'm, I'm like fascinated more by like what he does in like action or like tense, tense scenes where there's just like atonality all over. Mm-hmm. It seems to be breaking every, um, every rule. Like it's like, it just, it, it, it 
if you were to listen to any one instrument, you'd be like, that's not musical, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. But in context, it just creates this tension, you know, and there's like arpeggiated, just uh, a, a, to a tonality going throughout everything. Nothing's matching up and it just makes you feel tense when you hear it, and you're like, wow, that's incredible. And he composed that. He chose every note, you know? Like, it's yeah. not just With like, piano, oh, go and for and it. A piece right? of paper. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that stuff is just so fascinating to me. So I feel like I discovered this new, this new world. Um, and obviously a big part of that is finding sample libraries that not only sound good and realistic and that have been captured well, but that also, um, are fairly intuitive to use, you know, because you don't want to be, again, I find, I find that like everything that I want to do in my setup is just a balance between create creativity and my workflow being tight enough that it doesn't sort of get in the way of the creativity. So if the whole time you're just trying to figure out how to get this damn, you know, software plugin to sound good, then you're not writing, you know? Um, yeah. So you want to minimize that as much as possible. So that those are the plugins I tend to gravi gravitate towards are the ones that sort of are easy to work with and intuitive to, to program and write with. Yeah. Uh, and so you mentioned that you've used some of the uh, Soundire and Olympus choirs on the, the last P3 album. Yep. Uh, could you tell us sort of like how oh, yeah. you used it and what you liked about it? Um, what I liked about it was... Um, uh, I think the legatos sound really good and I'm a sucker for good legato scripting. Um, I thought the tonality was good. You know, the, the, the thing about, uh, periphery is, uh, uh, is very dense. So there's some choirs that will sort of sound better, uh, in, in cleaner music, but you know, we needed something that can like cut through the mix a little bit better. Yeah. Um, so I have a few choirs, but that was the one that seemed to work very well. And although we didn't end up using it on this, um, you know, the, the the phrase creator is always i think those are clever i think those are a lot of fun actually it makes that i feel like that always adds a a sense of realism um i don't think we use that anywhere in particular but um yeah good legatos and good tone appropriate tone i should say uh to cut through a mix very very tough when you have distorted guitars they just eat everything yeah yeah i totally i totally get you on that like um you know some choirs sound good by themselves but then once you put them into a dense mix or a mix that has a wall of distortion they just disappear and there's nothing left there's nothing it just literally takes up space in the mix and you don't hear it so it is a bit about finding the right tool for the job uh and that was that was pretty much the right tool for the job whenever we wanted a choir awesome uh, when it comes to some of the, you know, you're doing your pre-production and the more symphonic stuff, is there any sort of plugins that you tend to use for, you know, mixing or reverbs or effects, anything that you tend to like? You know, uh, it, it's interesting because I feel like I'm really learning a lot of stuff about that still. Like I, as much as I have my moves when it comes to metal, the interesting thing about rock and especially metal and when you're working with distorted guitars is so much of what you're doing is just mitigating disaster. You know, like you're working with very unfriendly frequencies uh, and you're just trying to get everything to work to some degree, if that makes yeah. sense, you know, and still get to sound big, still every everything's fighting to cut through. And you're just, so a lot of what you're doing is like trying to make it work first and then focus on like getting it to sound good. It's a bit the opposite with the or orchestral stuff because it all sounds great. Yeah. And it's more about getting it to coexist. Um, so if you have different libraries recorded in different rooms, that's where like reverbs will come in and like if you use the kind of same reverbs on on the same instruments, then it'll make them sound more like they're in the same room. Yeah. 
but you can't go can't go too crazy with it either um because they're such delicate sounds um they um excuse me um because they're such delicate sounds they they can like um you're just hearing you're hearing such nuance um and the reverbs can just become overwhelming if you're not careful with it you know it could just be a wash like because in the context of like one section be like, oh that sounds great and then before you know it, you have it on everything and it's like wow this this mix is just a complete mess right now you know so yeah you listen to everything by itself and then you're like oh you know this sounds great with all this reverb right. and then as soon as you you know unsolo it you're just like what is going on right and it's kind of it's kind of different in metal like for example if i put reverb on a snare drum and you were to hear it solo you'd be like wow you put that much reverb it's like yeah you need that much reverb because it's cutting through like walls that distort guitars and bass right yeah. and it'll and and in context you'll just hear a little bit um and then with orchestral music it's the it's like everything just gets magnified because it's just and generally speaking, very beautiful and rich sounds, you know? Yeah. So it's it's kind of learning to take a very subtle approach. Like, every move needs to be very subtle. Um, and I'm not using any crazy plugins, because those crazier plugins, I feel like, are in there to fix problems, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, right? Yeah. So it's generally, like, EQ rever reverb and a bit of compression, and all sort of small moves. I've found that the the lighter the hand I have with that stuff, the better and just sort of like making sure you're managing your your low end a lot because that stuff builds up really quickly, especially if you use a lot of reverb. Um, I don't know. Maybe you've got some tips for me there because I'm not really an expert uh, in those in those categories. But like that's that's just what I found is it takes a completely different uh, approach. Yeah, I think with any sort of mixing, what it really comes down to is like probably one of the best things I've ever learned when it comes to mixing is just subtractive eq like taking out the stuff you don't need that's usually probably right. like the first thing i'll ever do is like okay you know how much low end do i need okay take out the rest you know just you know moves that are, you know and, yeah. and not drastic moves not usually the first thing the first thing people tend to do is just start boosting everything boosting the highs boosting the lows and just and then they hear it by itself and they're like yeah this sounds awesome no i yeah i mean that that i think you kind of learn early on is not generally a good move the only exception to that will be on my master bus will tend to boost the highs mm -hmm. um you know do like a high shelf uh that's part of a philosophy that nolly taught me which i which i'm kind of into which is that most sounds are darker than you would expect them to be so if you put it on the master bus it should even them out however everything else is pretty much subtractive um from there just remove what you don't need and idea being that whatever's left is the good stuff you know yeah that it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of the nail the mix stuff and one of yeah. the things i learned from him was the, the top down mixing and just you know yeah and some people frown upon that i think it's kind of one of those things that if you're gonna do that anyway across everything sort of you know boosting some highs boosting some lows and then making smaller moves to individual instruments it just kind of makes things a lot more easier. I think it kind of speeds up the process a lot more. In the context of rock and metal too, like really the philosophy is that all your source tones, like pretty much any source tone that you think you're going to be capturing will be darker than you expect it to be when you reference it against a professional mix, yeah. right? Um, guitar tone, drums, um, voice a lot of the time. I mean, unless you're running it through some crazy chain before it, it you, you, actually hit the, the computer um so so as a result you're going to end up 
if you don't do that, you're going to end up with, with a very dark mix and not really understand why. Yeah. And rather than boosting it on every track, why not give yourself a bit of a head start by doing it on the master track, mastering top down? You know you're going to be going into a compressor. You know you're going to be going into a limiter. Mm -hmm. So mix into those things because both of those things can severely affect how your mix sounds. Um, so again, I, I'm, I, I sound like I'm justifying it as like it's the only way to do it, but it's not. You know, mix however you want to mix and whatever works, works. But that is why that has always made sense for me. And to some degree, that does translate still to if I'm doing orchestral stuff or electronic stuff, I, I still do kind of do that as well. Awesome. Uh, when it comes to creativity, is there anything that you do to help maybe break writer's block or something that you do to help you get out of a dry spell when it comes to writing? I, you know, I, I struggle with that a lot, especially in the winter. I find that the weather affects my creativity a lot. And I live in, I live on the East Coast. So this winter has been really brutal. It's been tough to be creative. Oh. If it's like gloomy outside, I don't feel like writing. If it's cold, I don't know. It just like bright, sunny days always help a little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I, I think I think the one thing I've learned is not to force it. You yeah. know, uh, every time I've tried to force it, it's not been great. You know, and then um, not beat yourself up, which I'm saying out loud now, but <laughs> I probably still will. <laughs> I probably still will beat myself up later. Yeah, I think it's really easy to especially when, you know, you're in a professional band and you're sort of looked up to like, OK, you know, keep the music coming because everyone's always wanting more and more music. You know, you put out an album and then, you know, a few months later, they're like, all right, where's the next one? And you're sort of like, you know people are just looking for you to just keep pumping out music all the time. And people don't realize it's like, Hey, you have to like get into that creative space or want to write. Absolutely. You know, you can't, you, like you said, you can't force it. And I feel like for me, a lot of times ideas come to me when I'm not even, you know, in front of, you know, my computer or like holding a guitar, like I'll just be at the store somewhere and like a little rhythm pops in my head. I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And sort of like working it out in your head before you even get to a guitar. And then from there you could sort of like, all right, cool. Now I can really expand on it. That actually happens to me in the shower a lot, which is inconvenient. But, <laughs> you know, I've definitely raced out of the shower before trying to commit an idea. And I'll be like, like, you know, working it out, drumming it out on myself, trying not to forget it <laughs> in between the time I dry myself off and actually get to my computer. Um, yeah, it, it does. It does. Inspiration does tend to hit at interesting times, sometimes when I'm driving as well. I guess it's in times where it's just sort of blank, where there's blank around you, you know? So I'm usually yeah. not listening to music in the car either because I'm weird. But, um, you know, when and the shower is like white noise, it's like maybe that's what clears your head out. So maybe there's some advice. But like, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of those things uh, that that also encourages me to write with the guys because they are the best cures for a writer's block ever. Sometimes, you know, I'll be stuck and then, you know, I'll hear them do something and it'll be like, oh, there we go. That's it. You know, so. They're coming over in a, in in a few days actually, and we're gonna be starting to write. Oh, that's great for for the new album, and I'm really excited about that actually. How is that coming along as far as uh, the new album? Are you guys almost done? Like that? Guys... That is, no, no. That is we're starting our very first writing session for it in a few days. Oh, so. oh, awesome. So it hasn't hasn't even begun yet. I mean, you know, I'm always writing little ideas, and so are they. But this will be the first formal session, if you will, where we actually try to piece some stuff together and write together and see what see what happens. You know. So do you guys all just sort of write on your own and then get together and collaborate ideas? Yeah, basically. And we can, at this point, we can kind of trust that when we get together in a room, music will happen and it will be fun and effortless. So we don't even really worry about like what, 
we're going to write and how it's going to come together. Like, I have no idea what this new album is going to sound like. Uh, and to be honest with you, I haven't known what most of the other albums were going to sound like until we started writing it. We just kind of go with the flow. If it sounds good, great. If it doesn't, then try to fix it. If you can't fix it, then work on something else. Yeah. That's that's basically it. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I think that's the exciting part about working on a new album, especially when you're a band like you guys, you know, progressive band that, you know, you don't try to write anything specific. It's kind of like whatever we want to write, that's what we're going to write. Right. And I think that's that's yeah. the fun part. Like when you're in a band that's sort of like like there's some bands that are just known for having a certain style. And if they if they just modulate it any way then people are just like, oh, I hate it. Oh, I like the last album better. And right. it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of frustrating for bands because you're not the same person from, you know, five years ago, two years ago. So it's like approaching every album from just like a fresh perspective, like, all right, cool, let's just see what happens. And I think it's the best way. And I think you get the best product in the end. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, I'm not trying to impress anybody with this. Like... This is this is a selfish pursuit for all of us. The only people I care about being happy are the other band members. Like outside of that, if if our management doesn't like it, if our labels, well now we now we are the label as of as of now, but in the past oh. if the if the label didn't like it, if you know management didn't like it, if the fans didn't get it, if you know whatever, like I didn't care. No one cared. Because the whole reason I started this in the first place was because it's fun to write music. And I want music that's fun to write. I just want to have a good good time making it. I probably won't even listen to it that much, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's literally the experience of making it that's the most fun part. And then putting it out feels good. Because I believe in it. Even if it's badly yeah. received, um, I'll feel good about putting it out there because I because I that's how I'll feel. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like when you spend so much time working on something, of course, like after you're done, you're just like, all right, I don't ever want to hear these songs again, except for, yeah. you know, you have to learn them to play them live. That's, or liter- that's literally it. That is, that is, you're, you're on the money right there. It's like the, the, the only time I really ever listen to our songs is to practice them for tour. So yeah, I can't tell you the last time I listened to Periphery 3 in its entirety. There, there's always like a, a window of like a couple weeks after we turn in the masters and then yeah. maybe like. I'll listen to it like once or twice, like once the album's officially out or once it's, you know, out in the world and I'll sort of put myself in the mindset, try to hear it like for the first time, try to pretend like I'm hearing it like for the first time. And then after that, I'm like, I'm good. You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like you, you wait until you get the CD and you're like, Oh cool. Like I finally have it. It's like, it's real. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's real. Okay, cool. All right, on to the next, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then two months later, you're like, God, I, you know, I just wish I would have changed that one part on that one song, or <laughs> yeah, that 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 part will never go away, you know. Yeah, that's the that's the perfectionist. I think we've accepted that, and we just you know you just deal with it and move on. The do byproduct it, of being an artist. Do it, do it better next time, you know. Yeah. Um. So you pretty much use Cubase a lot for uh, a lot of your pre-production and writing. Have you always used Cubase, or did you ever use any other DAWs before that? No, or? no, I've been I've been all Steinberg um, from day one. You know, uh, uh, Cubase was just uh, what I started with. It makes the most sense, but I have to say, in hindsight, it's the uh, it's by far like I've used other DAWs, and it's by far the best for composition. You know, um, without a doubt, it has the best MIDI tools. Um, 
and and more important than anything else, it's you know I know it, so it's it, it works with my workflow. There have been yeah. other very competent, like Nolly works in in Logic. I think it's a very competent DAW, but mm-hmm. you know I can't work in it. We tried to write stuff at his place, and it's just it was just the the workflow was making everything so slow to where it made me not want to be creative, you know, because it was like we're spending more time just trying to get things to trying to figure it out than yeah. I was actually writing music. So. You know, a doll is like a language, you know, it's uh, some are better at other things, but ultimately you're going to be more comfortable with the one, you know, so, you know, use the, use the one, you know, uh, and, and I know, I know Cubase well enough to where I don't have to think about it. I can just, you know, make the ideas happen. Yeah. It's almost like an instrument or like an extension of you. It has to just be like, kind of like, you know, playing an instrument. It's like, if you don't really know how to get from point A to point B or like, you're like, Oh, I want to connect this scale and go up here. Like, but I don't know how to do it. You know, it's, it's the same thing with they're like, I want to record, I want to record a song and master it or, or mix it or whatever. But then you're like, you know, you have to like, once you know all that and it's just like a part of you just, yeah, you want it to be out of the way to some degree. I mean, as much as that doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement for Dawes, I think everyone would agree a good doll is one that feels like it's out of the way. Like it's never in your way or impeding your progress when you're trying to be creative, you know, like that's the, probably one of the highest compliments you could pay to a good doll. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's definitely a really personal thing. I, I use Cubase too. Uh, I used to use logic. I had logic pro nine. Right. And then, you know, when I started really getting into the film composer world and seeing a lot of composers who I liked using Cubase, you know, I'm like, if Hans Zimmer uses it, yeah, it's gotta be a, you know, pretty good. Dog. It is interesting that like like composers have really latched onto this because outside of outside of that world, a lot of people use Pro Tools because it's like a very good engineering platform. Though yeah. I'd, I'd argue it's objectively not a great creative platform, and I think even Pro Tools fans would agree to that. You know, and Logic is interesting because it seems to be somewhere in the middle. Like they really tried to to um, be in, be in the middle ground. And I think it's a, you know, again, Nolly works in logic and loves it, but um, I, I'm not faulting it, but I just found it very difficult to switch to. Though I do know quite a few people who've switched from Pro Tools to Cubase, interestingly enough. So there's something about it that is, I think, intuitive enough to where people will switch to it. Yeah, I think when it comes to Pro Tools, it was just, it's been such an industry standard that yeah. people just they think like, OK, I want to get a, you know, I want to build a home studio and start recording. Oh, you get Pro Tools. Right. But nowadays things have changed so much and like so many DAWs are really sort of trying to expand and make, you know, like there's uh, um, like Studio One. You know, I was Studio One kind of did the impossible, bit. in my opinion. You know, it's I, I when they came out, I was like, you're not going to start a new DAW. No one's going to start using a new DAW. I guess ridiculous, you know. Uh, and then they did it. They did it. I know a lot yeah. of people who use Studio One, and and I, as I understand it, it's like a, a lot of ex Steinberg guys who felt that like Cubase was maybe a bit bloated and uh, a little bit too uh, too clunky. Um, and I used I I actually I actually got a I got, I think I got a copy from from someone at Presonus. They were like, check this out. Let me know what you think. And I thought it was really cool. It was just missing some sort of essential workflow features. Like one of the things I loved about uh, Cubase is the the drum map. It makes my drum programming just literally ten times faster than doing it in a piano roll. So now that's just the default. If I don't have that, I'm in trouble, you know. And then things like with orchestral music, like having the expression maps, like like that's a, that's a game changer. And I know yeah. you can get like plugins, you can buy plugins, or you can buy things that approximate those things in other DAWs. But like the fact that those are like just essential parts of Cubase, like. 
it just seems like it was very composing oriented like they were always just catering to to composers wants and needs speaking of the uh of the expression maps in cubase do you have any tips that you have uh that sort of speed up the process making expression maps because i've found for myself that you know oh, they take it, forever it, it takes forever and you're just they like, take forever Actually, here's a tip, and I haven't even implemented this yet because I keep making expression maps and then like forgetting I made them, and then like just like I'm in a project, and I'll just like oh, I'll just make one real quick, and then 30 minutes later it's made. It's like oh, that was a waste of time. Uh, I think I overcomplicate them. Like I think I'm like oh yeah, I'm gonna need Coleño in this, and it's like no, I'm not. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I think I think my 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 rule that I'm gonna keep to myself is I'm gonna use expression maps for things I actually am gonna use. Yeah. So like. I'll probably have legato, spiccato, and like, I don't know, maybe like if there's like a good trem, a tremolo or like a or pizzicato, depending on the context, you know, something like that. Things I'll actually switch between. Like the big, like honestly, my, my advice with that, if we really think about what makes expression maps good, it'd be like any line that shares sort of legato and spiccato articulations. Um, yeah, like if you're gonna like, da, 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 like normally you'd have to switch between the two tracks. So yeah. for something like that, it would be ideal, right? Because you could do it just in the same track and not have to awkwardly go between two tracks. Yeah, and try to figure but, out the velocity for the other track right, and make right, it sound right. like it's seamless. So that's I would almost say like if I was gonna do expression maps in the future, rebuild them, I would actually probably just make it between legato and spiccato or some something like that. I mean, obviously, like that's like generalizing with strings right there, but like with horns, just have the articulations I'll actually use, you know, um, yeah. and that more importantly that you'd actually need to use in one continuous uh, riff or motif or idea because otherwise. You you know, if it's just like, oh, this section now is going to be tremolo, then that's fine. I'll just switch to the other track for that, you know, and yeah. with track with the with the folders and Cubase, you can still keep everything neat. You know, the other the other advantage is like, oh, you don't have like a million tracks. But now, you know, I, I'm just saying, like, I think I overcomplicated it, but it is kind of a pain to set up. I'm not going to lie. It's about like I definitely spent entire days building that. And I think I have a video showing like my expression map setup i had at one point which was just nuts and there's one distinct disadvantage to the expression maps which is sometimes just to the nature of like some string libraries the legatos are a little bit soft in context the attack is a little soft so i'll layer it with with uh, the spiccatos but then now you need another track anyways just for that yeah, right just for the spiccato so so like i think i think in that in that context like i would probably just keep those expression maps very simple and then have a bunch of additional individual articulations for when I need those. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense actually is I, cause I think I kind of do the same thing. Like when you have, you know, a bunch of libraries that have all these multiple articulations, like your first thing is like, I want to have them all laid out. I want to be able to just, you know, when I want to use it, use it. Right. But when you think about it, a lot of times when you start writing, you're like, well, I really don't use all these. So maybe I should just have a track of just that for when I do. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Does the middle of this motif need like super soul pont? You know, like, no, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> you, I might never use that articulation ever, you know? So I don't need to be like, I don't I don't need to like then make my expression map thing you know like I was like oh it's so small I can barely read what it is it's like no it just needs to be like two or three things yeah. max so there's my advice yeah. 
and I haven't even taken advantage of that advice yet. But I will. Yeah, unless you're some big time film composer, and you know you have a, an assistant who can just sit sit there for a few days and just right. map all this stuff out. And- well, you know, I look at like the big composers. Like I remember, like uh, uh, Tom Hulkenberg, is that you say his name? Junkie XL, like was like you know, he, yeah, he, Junkie he XL. does a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, a video showing his setup and his process, which I think is really cool. But a lot of these bigger guys will have like, you know, and obviously like Zimmer, but a lot of these composers who, who do a lot of work will, will sort of have that setup where they have every library loaded as tracks yeah. and then use Cubase's folder track to like make it not look like the complete mess that it is. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm guessing they're running like crazy, like you know, slave setups for that. But like, yeah, those dudes, yeah, it's insane what the, the setups that those guys have. Like up, like five or six slaves. Like I, I saw one of the videos with Junkie XL, and he showed his back room, and you just hear all these computers just running. He's like, all right, so I got this and this. And right, this. it's like a server farm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, for all these like, you know, guys getting started that think, oh, that's what I need. No, like <laughs> it's amazing how little you need really you know if you're trying to get something that's realistic it's more fun to have like the crazy libraries and the specific libraries and you know if you're going to do the detail work it's great but it is amazing like how a lot of it i think a lot of people will try to buy their way out of these problems like oh my composition sucks well it's probably because i don't have like the hans zimmer surfer farm like with all the slave computers you know and like yeah 50 string libraries that i'm layering yeah and, and, you know, talking about layering, one thing that we did on Periphery 3, which was really good, is like, not for every section, but for the sections I'd say that were the sort of most obvious that they were kind of MIDI mock-ups, because uh, some sections were better than others for a million different reasons, uh, is then we just hired small sections. There's this guy who knows how to arrange this music, you know, again, I don't know theory and I can't score this stuff, but I sent him the MIDI. And then he transcribed that into into traditional sheet music and had like recorded these small sections playing mm-hmm. those parts. And then we layered them over the top. They match perfectly, but they all also sound more unique and realistic. But it sounds like a larger section, too, you know? Um, yeah. So you use the libraries for the size and you use the small sections to give it the added realism. And like that's almost a better way to spend money than trying to like layer five string libraries on top of each other and hope you have the computer power to, to run it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially cause a lot of times so many different libraries have their own reverbs baked into it. Right. So it's kind of like people forget sometimes that you can sort of, you know, use an ensemble, you know, maybe divide it up between like first and second violins, violas, cellos and all that, and then have some more drier libraries even laid in, even if you're not even doing like a real uh, string thing, together even if you're just using the sample libraries you can do stuff where you can sort of you know have the more drier ones up front so right. it sounds like you have that more individual you know timbre of the instrument and that's what a lot of people do I, i've done that as well like actually layer layer some of these libraries it works pretty well you know like i know a lot of people use like uh last for that you know because it's a very dry up front in your face library which isn't always what you want but then if you mix it in with a fairly wet library uh fairly wet string library then it can sort of work together uh very nicely you know so yeah. this is this is half the fun this is why i have way too much software i've spent way too much money on this crap <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i feel your pain on that yeah man i haven't haven't we all i bet everyone in this industry has yeah it's like you work you know all this time and then you see this new thing you're like oh man that's that seems awesome that's what i need to get and you get it and then there's some other thing that comes out and you're just like oh. yeah yeah this is this is very much the truth 
Yeah. Well, since you have so much cool stuff and, you know, I, I know you've been experimenting with uh, like analog synths and stuff. Um, is there any gear that that you've been wanting to get or that you feel that would be sort of important to your Ooh. workflow or things that you want to implement? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I am intellectually aware that I, I have way too much stuff already. Uh, and and <laughs> I, I have way more than what I need, without a doubt. Like, like. I had more than what I needed when we did Periphery 3, and I have more gear now. So um, <laughs> it's not a question of need. It's a question of want. In the, in yeah. the world of wants, um, and I especially love when, like, you know, it's just people being creative or there's new technology or, or things are just getting refined. But there's yeah. also this big kick on analog synths right now, which I love. So, so now you're seeing a lot of cool options there. And um, there's this Deckard's Dream synth, which I want which I'm really considering spending a lot of money on. Have you heard about that? No, no, I haven't. I haven't actually. Heard I think it's one. like a, it's like a CS80, uh, tribute. Like it's not even an emulation. It's just crazy analog synth. I think, I think it's made in Japan and I think it costs like four grand and oh, it wow. just sounds like Blade Runner, the synth and it's, <laughs> and it's just so sick and I really, really don't need it. And I really, really want it. So, Yeah. Um, yeah, I, those analog synths can get pretty expensive. It's like, I mean, because VST synths are cool, but there's just something about, I think, analog synths that just there is, there is. I, I just did, it. I just did an electronic album with uh, Jake from my band, and and I have I have a fair bit of analog synths already. Like I, I have a, a Moog Sub Thirty Seven, a Moog Minotaur, a Sequential Prophet Six, uh, 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 Korg uh, Mini Log. Uh, and, uh, I was using those so much with pedals and with, you know, with, with axe effects and, or, or just the effects in the DAW or whatever. But yeah, the way those things sound and fit in the mix is insane. I, and I was using a lot of software synths too. So it's a, it's a mix of both. The thing about the software synths is you can do anything like they're so easy, like get any sound out of it. Right. Yeah. Um, but it requires a bit of, of, of work and finessing to get it to sit well, to get, sort of get what you want. These analog synths, especially of this caliber, there's just something about how they sit in a mix that is effortless. Like, sometimes I forget to EQ them, you know, because it, mm -hmm. it just works. And I say forget because I always generally try to, you know, high pass filter a little bit, you know, just because so, yeah. those things get out of control. But, like, I'll literally forget to... With the with the software sense, I'll need to do some work. You know, it just it just needs a bit of work to help it sit the way I want it to. And the analog stuff just it's just magical. So it's not that you can't get good results out of digital synths, and I love them, I really do. But there's something about a, an analog a hardware analog synth that just is is magical in how it just works. You know? Yeah, especially when you layer it, like layering it with guitars, oh, yeah. like that. Like as soon as uh, when I started doing some recording stuff and because I'm a big dream theater fan, and yeah. I've always loved the sound of, you know, rhythm or like lead guitars layered with synths. It just like it just adds this other, I don't know, just harmonics to it. That just sounds. Dude, you, you aren't know. kidding, because I actually discovered that kind of by accident. So the whole fall in love with synths thing was around the time we started Periphery 3. You know, maybe it was because I was just like, I need something else to be into. So the orchestral libraries were, were, were one thing that was like, wow, this whole new world. And I was like, you know what? I'm fan. I, I, I'm, I'm fat. Not fan. Fantasized. I'm fascinated by 
synthesis and I want to kind of learn it. So I'm going to get a good analog synth. I got Moog Sub 37 because I was like, it seems like that synth is very hard to make sound bad. So it'll be encouraging, but it'll also teach me about synthesis. And yeah. I just got it just to just to learn. And I'll, I'll tell you, man, that that synth is probably on every track of that of that album. <laughs> Sometimes in places you wouldn't even realize because what I realized is like, yeah, like if I double a line with, with the sub 37, like a guitar line or a lead line or whatever, yeah, you might not even hear the synth, but it just does something magical to, to the, the sound and the tone of it. Like it just sat so perfectly. And it was one of those things everyone's here and like, you know, I'd like program in the line to match the guitar and everyone would be like, yep. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. You take yeah. it out and you're just like, nah, put it back. Yeah. Put it back in. Exactly. Exactly. Because I try not to be like too gratuitous with that stuff. Like, oh, I got a piece of gear, therefore I have to use it. But yeah. It was more out of curiosity. And, and everyone was like, yeah, no, that is better. That is better. And then eventually there's this kind of thing like, hey, put the Moog on there, you know, let's mm -hmm. see what that sounds like. So there's I, I agree uh, completely with guitars, you know, like a good analog synth. Um, my God, it just it just works. It sounds so good. I'll be abusing the crap out of that on the new album, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so with all the cool stuff that you've been a part of and you know all the awesome things and opportunities you've been able to do, is there anything that you haven't done that you sort of want to do? Or Yeah. Or, um, relative to music? Uh, anything. Or just like, you know, like business-wise or with, you know, well, music. Well, personal goal is to get my pilot's license someday when I have time and money to do that. But yeah. Um, <laughs> And be better at, at driving cars uh, around a track. But aside from that, um, I'd say, I'd say, uh, I mean, I'd, I I feel like I've been slowly chipping away at this. I haven't really taken a good sort of stab at it, but like, I'd love to compose for video games or for movies someday. But it's yeah. a very tough industry. It's, I'm, I'm realistic. Like it's, a, it's a very tough industry to break into, you know? Um it's one of those things where people will go to the guys that they go to and for good reason. Cause why would, why take a chance on someone new when you got something that works, you know? And in yeah. those cases you really can't afford to have those things not work. So it's, it's a tough industry without a doubt, but it's something I hope to slowly break into. Uh, Cause you know, I've, I've had a little taste of it and it's been really fun when I have. So have you actually done any composing for anything before? Or? So I contributed two songs to the the Halo 2 uh, reissue, the, the anniversary reissue, um, which was fun. Uh, and That's awesome. I did a song for the end credits of the Deus Ex, the uh, Mankind Divided game. Uh, just an end, an end credits thing, which was, was fun. That was like pretty open to interpretation, but I had fun with that. Uh, and I actually covered, I was a big Destiny fan, and I covered, I uh, did like this metal cover of like one of the sort of strike bosses, because mm -hmm. uh, I just liked that song a lot. And again, it was an exercise in like trying to pick out every part, because it's very orchestral, trying yeah. to pick out every part in the orchestra to see if I can like replicate it on guitar to some degree. Um, but the composer actually heard that and liked it, and then they ended up using it as a placeholder for like this this DLC that came out and then they ended up doing just as as luck would happen they did a a revamped version of that strike which was a lot that whole update was a lot more metal like literally I think it was for Rise of Iron so like the metal is like a big 
theme mm-hmm. there. So it's just one of those things that worked out very, very interestingly. And they ended up using that as the song. And I, like, this was just good luck on on my my part. But I did a one to one copy of the song, you know. So like, every, it was the same tempo, same everything. Yeah. So when so they could literally take the track and sequence it in the exact same way. So mm-hmm. you know, it would loop and end and start exactly as the orchestral one did. So for them, it was like super easy. And they're like, hey, can we license throw this? It in. And, yeah, and throw it in. I was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah, I, I think I think you could totally do it. I mean, from what I've seen of the orchestral stuff that you've done, you know, I and just your knack for writing, I think you could totally do it. I think it would be a challenge. Like, I don't think it would be something that I could just... I, but I think the challenge would be what, what would force me to get better in a way that would be difficult if I didn't have that on my plate, you know, but I, but it's a challenge that I think would be a lot of fun like that. I'd really want to really want to take seriously. Uh, I just need the opportunity. I need to find something that makes sense. And it's also something that to be quite honest with you, it's like at this point in my life, like, you know, something comes like I'll, I'll do it, but I'm not chasing it. Cause I have so many things on my plate already that like, you know, if I got like a thing where I had to score a game or, or something, you know, uh, it would be a pretty big commitment and other things would have to get kind of pushed to the side. So I don't even mind if this is something that sort of slowly develops now and that eventually, you know, materializes down the road when, when I can dedicate a bit more time to it. But, um, but that is something that, yeah, long-term I would love, I would love to be something I do. Like same for me. I'm just like, man, you know, the band stuff's cool, but Man, it'd be really cool to score a video game. I don't know. For me, I think video games would probably be more of something I would want to do. Agreed. Than because uh, yeah, film scoring, I mean that I love listening to film scores, but something about video game scores, I think there's just a more of a a what? freeingness. I think to it. I think a lot of video game scores. I think the goal of a video game score is very different. Like in a movie. And I don't know if this is just a sign of the times, you know, this is a matter, it's been a matter of debate, but I feel like a lot of times the job of, of uh, scoring a movie for a lot of movies is to kind of be out of the way. You know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of to be a bed for the movie to sit on, but not like ideally you shouldn't even notice that it's there. Right. Whereas in a video game, it's a lot of times the driving force, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and and it means that you get more adventurous with your motifs and with with what's going on musically, and it's a lot more memorable. Like yeah. you, you know, Final Fantasy, like Final Fantasy VII, like that music will always be important to me. That music makes me feel feelings. Yeah. Um, same for eight. Same for ten. You know, like those those um those games were games that I loved, and by extension, you hear the music so much. God, I just played Persona Five. Like God, that soundtrack is incredible. You know. That's why I walk away. Like the game was incredible, but that soundtrack was also incredible. Like that feeling is is amazing. So I I agree with you. I think like like uh, uh, scoring for video game would be something that would probably be more not only relevant to my interests but appropriate to my talents. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like there's a lot more of a creative freedom, right? Versus a film score, it's like okay, here's the picture. You know, this cue starts from here to here. It has to end. You know, and then but then it's like okay, now you have to fit for what you're seeing, you know, making it all sound yeah. like one thing. Like you're saying, like like bringing out that emotional aspect of it and not really being like at the forefront. It's really easy to know what a good score is 
And you ever have that where you watch a movie and you know when it's bad? You're just like, this music is horrible. Like, what are they doing? You know, I don't. It I just totally like I jumps out. Less. And, I feel like I notice that less when the music's bad. I just kind of just tune it out. But when it's good, I'm like, damn, this music is good. And I feel like that's not that common these days, like to where I actually notice that the music is good, you know? Yeah, there's actually some times where I've heard film scores and not even seen the movie. And it made me want to watch the movie because I was just like, damn, the score is so good. Like yeah. Benjamin Wallfish, his score for A Cure for Wellness is just one of my favorite scores. Oh, I never, I never just, saw that. Never saw that. Oh, just listen to the music. Even if really? well, I mean, <laughs> you get to see the movie, it it totally works. But like when I, I've listened to the score probably, I don't know, 50 times or more. And it's just so dark and just like beautiful but haunting at the same time and wow. that's the kind of stuff i even like you know when it comes to you know my own music it's just i've always kind of gravitated to the more like darker sounds yeah and just the way he orchestrates like he he can do the whimsical stuff but he when it comes to like the horror stuff he can make it really scary but at the same time just like these beautiful melodies that are just haunting and it works really well with like when i finally saw the movie i was just like okay yeah this is it made it that much better. Wow, noted. I'm gonna have to check that out then. I guess getting onto some of the more business stuff again. Um, you've, I guess, there's been some interviews where you've talked about, you know, having multiple income streams, you know, with the band, and you know, because sometimes I think a lot of people there's a misconception of like what bands, you know, do when it comes to like making a living. Um, is there? Uh, any suggestions that you would have for like more smaller time musicians that are, you know, trying to pursue their band that might be curious in exploring other aspects of the industry? Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like I, I've caught a little bit of flack because people, you know, misinterpreted what I was saying because like some websites like reposted an interview and made it look like I was complaining, which is kind of annoying. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of opportunity in this industry. Um, I think, if you're at a, a smaller level, like we used to give guitar lessons on the road, you know, um, our drummer Matt to this day still does. Mm-hmm. Um, just be creative with it. You know, I know some bands where like the the man the, the the band members or some of the band members actually manage other bands. Um, and then other than that, it may be more traditional stuff. It means that like you might still have to have a job when you get home. A lot of bands have that um, mm-hmm. more than you'd realize. Um, and I think there's people who think out there that like, oh, if you get to a certain size, that wouldn't be the case. But if we didn't have these other income streams, like I would have to get a job when I'm home from tour. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what it is. Um, is, is just sort of managing your expectations. Cause people are like, oh, well maybe you know, I get questions sometimes it's like, well, you know, it's not that I want to be a rock star or make a, a living or care care too much about being rich from music. If I could just clear like 60K a year from music, that that would be great. And I'm like, dude, like that, even that will be really impossible just off the band, off, just yeah. off band income and touring. Like you'd have to have a, a very lucky and, you know, maybe a long career before you'll, you'll get to that point. Um, and it's not something that you can count on. You're, and you're gonna have to do stuff in the meantime. It's got most likely, unless you win the lottery and your band blows up, it take you years, yeah, years and years and years of hustling. Uh, and in that meantime, what you're not gonna have a job, like, and you need to find other ways. So, 
you know, everything from like having a job when you come home from tour that's flexible. So a lot of people do serving, serving jobs, bartending, things like that, um, to, um, you know, giving lessons, Skype lessons when you can, um, or start in, in my case, you know, starting businesses. If you have the opportunity for signature products, chase those up. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of different for every band and, and the experience. Like, for example, we are not a big merch band. We can't sell that much merch. It's just not our scene. So there's bands that are smaller than us, uh, especially like scene bands, like mm-hmm. that can just crush it in merch and then they can walk home with more money and that that's great for them. But what yeah. we have is we have the opportunity to, to influence, uh, we're influencers when it comes to gear and things like that. And that's something that I parlayed into signature deals and into starting businesses. So it's sort of just recognizing, all right, what can I hit with this? And how can I translate that into something that will allow me to make some extra income, passive income, ideally, but extra income one way or another, because the band itself most likely will not allow you to survive. Yeah, it's almost like you have to approach everything else in your career just as creatively as the music. I think some people, like they focus so hard on the music and they're like, this is it. Like, this is this is the best thing I've ever done. Everyone should love it. And then right. when they go out there and they tour and they don't realize how hard it is and how, you know, like, I don't want to sleep on anyone's floor on the tour. Like, well, you're going to have to because we're not making enough money to get a hotel or sleeping. In right. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's at Walmart, first. You know? That's at first. But even even eventually, you know, you 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 might you might be fine with that. But just because you're sleeping on a floor doesn't mean that you're walking home with money, you know, <laughs> Well, Misha, I just want to thank you for your time uh, and taking this interview with me. I think, you know, you've offered a lot of really cool information in, in regards to your gear and how you approach your businesses and, and all that. And I just want to say thank you and, uh, and you know, good luck on the new Periphery album and everything else that you work on. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of cool things coming out in the future. Yeah, hopefully, right? It should be, should be a fun year. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep it that way. But thank you very much for the interview, man. 